Welcome back to the Expert Hour. In this episode, we speak to Dipanjana Pal, an author and journalist who writes about culture and society and is particularly interested in art, literature and cinema. Her biography of Raja Ravi Verma, titled The Painter: A Life of Ravi Verma, was listed among the best non-fiction books of the year when it was published in 2009. She is also the author of the crime thriller Hashabai Baby and two books of children's fiction. Today, we are speaking to her about fiction and the roles it plays in a society. The things we imagine, the ideas we perceive through stories, the way stories are reshaped through retellings and how stories become cultural artifacts. So welcome Dipanjana. We are very excited to have you podcast for us today. Thank you so much for having me. This is a great pleasure. So thank you for this. So without any delay, I will begin with the questions. So tell me Dipanjana, what is your understanding of fiction? So at a very basic level, fiction is that which is unreal it's made up of imagined elements but imagined elements that are strung together to tell a story what's worth keeping in mind though is that you know we have a very strict separation right now of fiction and non-fiction as though the twain shall never meet but <laughs> if you think about it the imagined and the factual have often been mixed like in our ancient cultures across the world stories that have been told and passed down generations they tend to be a combination of historical fact and fiction and i think i don't know the most obvious example of this would probably be the trojan war because that's something that you know we've all heard the stories from greek mythology or we we're familiar with them and i don't think anyone seriously accepts that a war would start because three goddesses were competing for a golden apple like that's not necessarily <laughs> a very credible basis but while that is clearly fictional we do know today that archaeology has shown that troy was a real place there may even have been a war so then what happens is that a story like homer's iliad for example becomes a myth that contains a memory of reality and this applies to so many stories that inform our imagination so keeping that in mind can you explain to me what you or how you perceive the distinction between history story and lies So this I think is you know it's a really important topic in our present day mm. because you know we have deep fakes and false narratives all around us but as is obvious from the fact that you know I'm starting a conversation with you about this by referring to the Trojan War mm. this is clearly a long standing issue and I think at the core of it the distinction between a story and a lie is in the relationship between the teller and the listener a lie requires the person who's being told the lie the listener to be unaware they cannot know that they are being lied to so then the teller is trying to assume a position of power right one that allows them to control the narrative that's essentially what a lie is an attempt to control the narrative in which the listener is unaware a story on the other hand is a far more i mean it's not equal but it's closer to an equal relationship because it assumes a shared understanding between the teller and the listener 
as a listener, you may not know exactly which part is fiction and how the fact is being used or abused, however it might be. But you do know there is fabrication taking place. The storyteller is taking liberties. When I tell you a story and you know that I'm telling you a story, we're both operating on the understanding that I may mess with facts. And you are giving me the liberty to do that because I've told you that I may do it. As a storyteller, I'm not in complete control of the narrative. I am in control because I'm the one telling you the story. But what you take from it is to a large extent really dependent upon you as well. I will try to feed you a certain number of messaging and details. But what you ultimately take from it is not entirely in my hands. But more importantly, we are both operating on the understanding that some of this may not be true. May not, right. And that's a really important uh, distinction because when it's a lie, it's actually the opposite, right? Because on one hand, there's an attempt to control the narrative by telling you, well, this is true. That distinction, I think, is quite important because when it comes to fiction, we tend to emphasize the unrealness of it when in fact there's packaging what might be unreal but at the heart of fiction frequently is truth. Uh, there's this fantastic phrase that uh, the filmmaker Werner Herzog had once used called the ecstatic truth. He was of course talking about cinema but cinema as storytelling is really what he's talking about and he basically said that he has very little respect for documentary filmmaking mm. in its conventional sense. Well, not that he doesn't have respect for it. His point is that when you're just documenting, you may not be arriving at the truth. And what you should be trying to arrive at through your storytelling is ecstatic truth. And he described it as something that is mysterious and elusive and can only be reached through fabrication, imagination and stylization. So that's something that is worth keeping in mind because in a story, the mm. teller and the listener are both aware that they're engaged in this fabrication. History in that sense is technically a little simpler because mm. it's just attempting to arrive at a certain truth through record without stylization and imagination. Of course, history is informed by who is telling it and their perspective, but there is an attempt at objectivity. And this has been true of historical record, which exists. Like It's not true that the Greeks discovered historical records, right? Like Sumerians, Chinese, Indians, we've all had historical records in our own way. And we attempt to arrive at a certain kind of objectivity in history. So it, it's basically bordering down to, you know, how someone's telling it and how the person who's reading it is perceiving it. Yeah. In, as simple as that. So given that, do you feel that fiction and nonfiction often get entangled? I don't think in popular imagination, it's possible to not have them, you know, entangled. Like they will inevitably come together because the persuasive powers of fiction are mm. incredible. And so if you think about it, there is not one historical figure that I think exists in our popular imagination, independent of a story or an image. And the image invariably tells you a story. It is not a bad thing for these two to come together because it makes people situations, incidents, memorable. Now, just to be clear, I don't mean that facts should be tampered with and historical records should have like wish fulfillment theories embroidering its fringes. That's not what I mean at all. Historical fact is 
incredibly important. We need chronologies, uh, what happened, when it happened, where it happened, these things to be laid down without uh, manipulation, without tampering. This is incredibly important because it's also that these facts, it's not just a question of who cares how it happened, but really these facts become the bedrock of culture. The stories that we tell, whether they're fiction or nonfiction, a blend, a myth, these build on the facts to create narratives. And mm. those narratives create heroes and villains that societies remember. Now, these traits that we're picking up on, that's what storytelling decides, right? Like any situation in which we want to remember something reflects, reflects us. Because why is it that we want to remember it? Every story does this inevitably. But we would not have stories that we would be able to tell if we didn't have the history and the facts. Right. It's all beautifully interrelated to each other. It's just for us to actually, in our minds, you know, think and process and assimilate correctly. Yeah, absolutely. So it uh, requires us to be sophisticated. Correct. Really. <laughs> That's a great word to use, sophisticated. So could you then elaborate on how you feel uh, stories can help to keep a historical figure in the public imagination? Yeah, like I said, just think of any historical figure. You will immediately have a story about them that comes to mind. The story often is rooted in fact, but may have been tweaked a little in the process of retelling, which is inevitable. Sometimes it's been, you know, when it's a journalistic story, it might have been tweaked to have a better punchline. That's the kind of impact that you're trying to make through a story being told. Essentially, what happens is that a story becomes the linchpin really, mm. that holds the facts about a person together. So like, for example, the story of uh, Mahatma Gandhi going to Buckingham Palace to meet George V in his dhoti and uh, shawl, coming out and telling the journalists that uh, His Majesty was wearing enough clothes for both of us, or a variation <laughs> of that. Right? I haven't quoted him exactly, but I don't yeah. think anyone's actually quoted him exactly ever, because that quote keeps changing in different people's retelling. The, what we do have, though, as basic fact, is Buckingham palace, an Indian subject who shows up in his dhoti and then says, well, he was dressed enough for both of us. It's a fabulous story. Uh, similarly, like uh, Subhash Chandra Bose escaping because mm. he's disguised himself as a bearded insurance agent called mm. Muhammad Ziauddin or something like that. He was under house arrest and he mm. escaped like that. And it was legendary. It's a story that survives now. It's been like about 50 years of retelling, right? Now, it's not important to us today, and it wasn't important even back then, what year this happened, exactly what was the texture of the dhoti, or what kind of blue was used to stick on Bose's beard. Yeah. These are technically, they're important details, but they are not relevant. Mm. What is relevant is the story. And why is the story relevant? Because it speaks to what we're valorizing as a society. Mahatma Gandhi's respectful irreverence, Subhash Chandra Bose's guts and inventiveness resistance to an establishment that mm. is considered oppressive. Correct. These are the things that we're picking up on. And the point that makes a story persuasive is that communicates these things without saying them. Because when I say that we would like to venerate Mahatma Gandhi for his respectful irreverence, I have immediately made him boring. Whereas him saying his majesty was wearing enough clothes for both of us, 
is way more entertaining and memorable. This is what I mean when I say that a historical figure stays in the public imagination because of the stories that are told about them. Yeah, perfect. You cannot remember someone who is not memorable. Facts are not memorable. Correct. Stories around facts, though, are very memorable. How true, how very true that statement is. Taking off from that point which you have just made, let's just talk a little bit about a story as a cultural construct that reflects and informs both the present and the future. So I think every story in some form or the other, like if it is a story, it will reflect its present. And if it uh, survives retelling or rereading, it will inform the future. There are so many stories that get forgotten. It's one of those mysteries as far as uh, books, for instance, are concerned. And not just books, actually, books, paintings, um, even cinema to some extent, I think, because cinema is a much newer art. So uh, we don't have as long in terms of tradition to analyze. But what is popular in a particular time doesn't necessarily become canon or a classic. Whereas a lot of stuff that is considered obscure in its time, Van Gogh's stuff being the most obvious example, become legendary later on because they are seen within a different context and they suddenly become far more powerful. In terms of a written story or a spoken story, words essentially, I think we tend to forget how incredibly active the act of storytelling is. This is not something that is done passively or exists in a vacuum. Everything that you choose to tell is informed by a decision that may or may not be conscious, but it is responding to the world around you. Mm. Stories are practically an embodiment of our collective will and aspirations. What we want to see in the world around us, what we fear, what we aspire to be, it's all contained in the kind of characters we celebrate, in the kind of characters we demonize, in the facts that we suppress, in the elements that we highlight. And as a story lingers, and lingers in the sense of, you know, being told and retold, it gains resonance. So, for example, this is not a written story in that sense, but uh, one of the stories that fascinated me when I was doing the research for my book on Raja Ravi Varma was his determination to learn oil painting. And this was something that I found quite interesting because it's not like we have any shortage of artistic traditions in India. And he was very aware of this, given you know his family's very robust cultural background. Why European oil painting? Now, there's a certain kind of determination and obstinacy here because oil painting was not something that we were taught. In fact, it was kept from Indian subjects. Visiting European artists were brought down by British uh, officers and uh, the elite and oil paintings were their purview. Mm. It was a secret of the European artists, which was not shared freely with Indian artists at all. The Indian artists who did pick it up picked it up through great inventiveness and sly skills, essentially. Mm. So when Ravi Varma is saying that I will paint Indian subjects in oil paintings, what he's doing is he's not laying claim to a European tradition. He's appropriating it. Mm. He's making it Indian. Why? Because he wants to accord the Indian subject a degree of respect that his political system does not accord him. The Europeans will not see Indians in the same light when it's a Tanjavur painting, but they do see them in a different light when it's an oil painting. The medium makes the difference. Now, that 
is in his context. So in his context, those paintings become a radical break from Indian tradition and set up what is going to become modern Indian art. Today, though, when we look at an oil painting, when we look at a Raja Ravi Varma painting or a painting that's inspired by his aesthetics, it's traditional. It's looking back not looking forward, and which is not a bad thing. I don't mean this as a judgment. It's not nostalgia to necessarily look back. Looking back is also celebrating a lot of great things. Mm. The only point is that, you know, the idea of oil paints, which was considered so radical and forward-looking in Ravi Varma's time, is a traditional element in our time. That's the difference of storytelling. Now, what you choose, what you choose to do with a device like the myths that you inherit or the technique of oil painting or the figures of folklore heroes or the history that is taught to you. What you do with it is informed by the present and reflective of what you want for your future. The stories we tell and the stories we remember are basically a reflection of our dreams and of ourselves. That is inevitably going to be a mix of fact and fiction. What a beautiful way, you know, encapsulated this whole thing for us. Thank you so much, Dipanjana. Thank you for this very, very interesting podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Thank you.